Well, good morning. If you are uh, new with us or uh, just visiting with us, my name is Andy Hall. I have the privilege of leading our youth here at CODA, who, by the way, are downstairs with some of our other youth leaders, so they're not running wild down there. Uh, so they are down there this morning, and it is a privilege to be able to just to uh, lead them and to teach them and to be with them. And so, uh, but this morning I have the privilege of preaching. And so we started last week, Luke introduced a series on prayer, specifically on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and it's a five-week series. So this is week two in that series. And uh, so we'll be in Matthew chapter six this morning. If you have, uh, if you want to grab the blue Bible in front of you and the seat in front of you, I think it's page uh uh, 1012. I think you can find it on that page. And so we're going to continue with our study this morning, looking at the Lord's Prayer, uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, um, is where you can find the prayer. Now, before we read the passage, uh, the Lord's Prayer is located within a larger sermon, which is the Sermon on the Mount, probably, arguably, the greatest sermon ever preached, ever spoken. And so in this sermon, Jesus is leading us and he's describing to us what the kingdom of God looks like. In essence, it's Jesus's kingdom manifesto. He's explaining to us what it looks like to live life under the rule and the reign of the king of Jesus. He's helping us see what it looks like as humans to live the most abundant and the most flourishing kind of life, the life that we are intended to live as God's people. And at the very heart, at the very center of this massive sermon, we have this expanded teaching on prayer. He spends more time on this topic than he does any other topic within the sermon on the Lord's Prayer. And so let's read what Jesus says about prayer. I'm going to start in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read down through verse 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the pray and pray in synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. And so what I want to do this morning before we jump in to the verses that we'll be looking at today, which will be verse 9 and verse 10, I want to think in terms of two big ideas as it relates to this prayer. The first is how, how we frame our prayers. Now we certainly can, um, pray this prayer as it is written, but I think the prayer not only is for that, but it's also intended to help frame our prayers. It's, it's meant to be a framework or a scaffolding of our prayer life. 
Uh, I have several commentaries on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and one of those written by Jonathan Pennington. He writes this concerning the Lord's Prayer. He says, The prayer is not the only prayer that the Christian can or should pray, but rather it is a model of what kind of petitions a God-oriented how God-oriented sh- uh, should mark the Christian life. It is a scaffolding around the tower of prayer or, or uh, guided handrails of which a disciple walks in forming his or her own prayers. And so I think as we think about our own prayer life, that this is a great place to start in forming and growing in our own prayers. And I would encourage you, if you have not already, to memorize the Lord's Prayer. It has a nice rhythm to it. Some of you may already have it memorized, but if you haven't, I would encourage you to do that because it helps to guide and form our own prayers as we spend time communing with the Lord in prayer. So that's the first thing, is to think of it uh, not just as a prayer, but as a framework for our times of prayer. The second thing is that this prayer builds on itself. So I want to go back to a little bit of what Luke was talking about last week, not because he missed anything, but it's important for us to see that verse 9 builds to verse 10, and in fact, the whole prayer builds on itself. And so Luke mentioned last week that the Lord's Prayer mirrors the Ten Commandments. The Lord's Prayer is, you can think of it in two sections, much like the Ten Commandments, you can think of it in two sections. The first half is very much Godward-focused, Godward-oriented, and it's dealing with our relation with the Father, where the second half is much more human-oriented or human-focused in terms, on our, in terms of our relationships with, with one another and our human needs. And so when we talk about these verses, verse 9 and 10, it's important to see that they go together, that they build on one another towards this Godward orientation of the first half of the Lord's Prayer. And so the first half of the prayer really has three requests. There are three requests in this first half, much like the second half has three requests. And this might be a little bit confusing simply because of the way that we've broken up the sermon series, but it also might be confusing as you look at your Bible, the way that the verses are designated in your Bible, you might not see that. But the the prayer begins here, our Father in heaven. And so the orientation is Godward. It's upward towards God, our Father in heaven, and then it's followed by three requests. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So in other words, the prayer is saying, our Father in heaven, let your name be hallowed, let your kingdom come, and let your will be done. And so what we're asking God for in these three things is that God that God would make his name hallowed, that God would make his kingdom come, and that God's will would be done in its full expression here on earth as it is as, as a reality already in heaven. And so what what I want us to do, I want to think about these requests in this way this morning. The first one is, God, get the attention. The second one is, God, have the power. And the third is, God, take control. So that's the prayer that we're praying. Our Father in heaven, get the attention, have the power, and take control. And so let's take those in order. God, get the attention. So Jesus knows the nature of sin. Jesus knows that sin is pervasive, that it affects everything about us in our rebellion against God, our turning away from God, our isolation from God, our walking away from God doesn't just affect the world around us, but it deeply affects us. 
It affects our heart. It affects our motives. It affects uh, our beliefs. It affects our thoughts. It, be, it affects our behaviors. And we know this to be true because if we're honest, most of us live self-absorbed, self-obsessed lives. But think about how we process our interactions with people, with events, and with experiences. We think about how are they affecting me? How does it reflect upon me? And in many cases, we find our identity in these various things. The reality is we crave the attention of others. We crave people's attention. I mean, think about why social media exists. If it wasn't for this inherent desire for people to watch us and to pay attention to us, then things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and whatever all the other social media outlets are would cease to exist because there's no other utility for them. So we know this to be true. And Jesus knows this to be true. He knows that sin is so pervasive that it can take a good thing and turn it into a sinful thing. It can even corrupt prayer itself. When prayer becomes nothing but an external exercise motivated by an empty righteousness of what people might be thinking about us or to garner attention versus this internal transformation that takes place in us that leads us to a prayer life that is life-giving and sincere. And this certainly fits within the context of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about prayer. If you go up to the very beginning of chapter 6, look at verse 1. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is how Jesus on-ramps into this discussion about prayer. He uses this phrase, practicing your righteousness before others. It's a kind of righteousness that is external only. In other words, it's a praying to impress people. It's a praying to garner the attention of others. Regardless of what words you use to address God, the audience is not actually God. The audience is other people. And whatever reward you're seeking, you will find it because the reward that you're seeking is the attention and the accolades of others. And it's a lesser kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about that's based on some kind of external uh, appearance or some kind of religious performance exercise. Now, let me be clear and let me restate what, what Luke talked about last week. Jesus here is not condemning public prayer at all. Jesus is speaking about the motive, not the mode of our praying. What Jesus is after is a greater righteousness, a righteousness that is another kind, wholly different kind of righteousness, a righteousness that is generated by the Holy Spirit and results in an internal transformation of the heart where God changes you from the inside out so that what is on the outside is a true reflection of what is on the inside, is a wholehearted kind of righteousness that Jesus is after. And so this is why the opening line of the Lord's Prayer is so important and so crucial. Our Father in heaven. Because it's the antidote to praying prayers that otherwise are designed to impress others and garner the attention of others. And so Jesus knows that our motive on how we pray and why we pray is directly connected to what we believe about the one that we're praying to. 
In other words, your prayers reveal what you believe about your relationship with God. Martin Lord Jones commenting on this says, There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Your prayers will reveal how you believe God relates to you and how you relate to God. And so right here from the very beginning, at the very beginning, Jesus says, here's how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, get all of the attention. Make your name hallowed. Praise and attention be to you. So let's let's pause and take an internal uh, examination of our own heart. And think about your own prayer life. When you pray, who is the point? Who is the focus? Why do I pray? What is my prayers all about? Maybe you ask yourself, what am I believing or what is my motivation for why I am praying? What is it that I'm thinking about God and about myself and about other people? Maybe for some of us, we need to flip that around and ask the question more like this. Why do I not pray? Why don't I pray in front of others? Whether my mission community or my DNA group or just with other people. Why do I not pray out loud? You see, for some of us, we need to ask, why do I pray? And others, we need to ask, why do I not pray? Because in both cases, it reveals our motives and our beliefs. Because what it might be revealing is that our audience is not God, but other people. And the attention that we crave most is our own. So it might be that we're praying, God, get the attention of the world so that the world praises you and sees your glory and calls your name holy, but we can't really pray that the world pays attention to God until we pay attention to God. And so we might be praying, God, get the attention, when we might ought to be praying, God, get my attention. And so Jesus, right here at the very beginning, he begins to reorient our heart by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven reminds us not only of our position before Him, but His position before us. Our Father is above all things. Our Father is beyond all limits of time and space. He sees all things. He's not limited by uh, by power or ability or the structures of the world. He has authority over all things, and there is nothing that is too difficult for Him. And He is in heaven, where everything is as it ought to be. That's the very nature of what heaven is. It's not clouds of some ethereal existence where you're just floating around. It is where God's rule and reign have its most full and perfect uh, expression and experience. And as our hearts are reoriented to our Father in heaven who loves us perfectly and dwells where all things are perfect, we're asking him to make all things as they ought to be in my life and in my relationships and in the world around me. And he says, hallowed be your name. Why? Because if we're going to pray in accordance to the truth of who God really is, with how God, what God really does, and how God really relates to us, then we need to know who he is, and we need to know what he is like. The name in the Bible, when you come across names in the Bible, they're not just the way in which you refer to somebody or you identify uh, who they are. It's an identification of what they're like. 
This is why God himself introduces himself through his name when he says, I am who I am. It's a way of saying, I am what you need. I am what sustains you. I am life itself. I am joy itself. I am love itself. Everything that you long for is found in me and me only. I am who I am. And so when we say our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we're asking God to realign our hearts with who he is and where his position rightly should be in our life. To hallow something is to set it apart as holy. Meaning that it's different, that it's above, that it's, that it's worthy. And so if we think about the Ten Commandments again, the first part of the Ten Commandments is how we relate and respond to God. And the second part of the Ten Commandments is how we, in light of the first part, how we relate and respond to those around us. The Lord's Prayer follows that same pattern. And so if you think about the very first commandment, As God speaks it in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, when he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, what we are saying is, I will have no other gods before you. You are my hope above all else, above all other people, all of the circumstances, opportunities, events, or things. Get my attention because you are my father and your name tells me what you are like. You are holy. See, Jesus knows that not only do our prayers reveal the kind of relationship that we have with God, but it also reveals the kind of God we believe we're praying to. And so we give more and more attention to God. And as we do that, this transformative work begins to happen in us where we find that he is far more interesting than we are. And we begin to discover that he is far more satisfying than we are in the things of this world. And that he is far more glorious and that he's far more beautiful and that in him there's far more depth and nuance and mystery. And as we give our attention upward to the only one who is worthy to satisfy, we will want more and more and more of him and want to be in his presence. And so Jesus says, begin your prayer this way. Our father in heaven, get my attention. Make your name hallowed. Praise and glory and honor is yours. The second request is your kingdom come. So God, get the attention, get my attention. Second is have the power. Now, there is a a lot of overlap between your kingdom come and your will be done. So I want to uh, differentiate the two this way. When we say your kingdom come, it is to say, God... You are the one who sets the rules and you are who defines reality. You get to say what is right and what is wrong. You get to say what is good and what is bad. You get to say what is true and what is false. You get to say what is worth valuing and what is not worth valuing. You get to say what is worth giving my life to and what is not worth giving my life to. You're the one who gets to say this path leads to life and this path leads to death. And honestly, if we think about the kingdom of God, we cannot miss the political implications of it. Your kingdom come is inherently political. 
You cannot say that the gospel does not intersect social and political uh, realities when the implication, the primary uh, metaphor is the kingdom of God. Now, we don't use the word kingdom a lot. That's not how our government and our uh, uh, context is set up. But when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, the hearers of his day certainly knew what he was talking about. Jesus was making a political statement to a new allegiance, to a different kind of kingdom, to a different type of king. Where there was a different set of rules, and there were a different set of laws, and there is a different set of values, and there's a different way of thinking who should march up the hierarchy and who should march down the hierarchy. Rome, at the time, had its own set of rules. It had its own set of values. It had its own set of socio-political hierarchy. The Jewish community at the time had its own set of rules and, and values and socio-political hierarchy. And Jesus comes right into the middle of all of this and he says, you should pray this way. God, let your kingdom come so that your rule and your value and your hierarchy would be established in its fullness on earth as it already is in heaven. And we get a glimpse of what these values are and what this kingdom looks like in the Sermon on the Mount. We get a glimpse of what Jesus' political platform might be in this massive sermon on the kingdom of God. And so when we pray this prayer, what we're hoping for to become a reality on earth is that the poor in spirit and the mourners and the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and the merciful and the pure and the peacemakers would be held at a higher esteem and would be elevated to positions of power and prestige where anger is equated to murder and lust is equated to adultery where your word is your bond and where you withhold retaliation and seek for ways to love your enemy God's kingdom is one that actively takes on the needy by the generosity of those who are not because those who have are more concerned about storing up their treasures in heaven than they are about their hoarding their treasures on earth but the question is is this the kind of kingdom that we want Because so often it looks different than the kingdoms that we have and the kingdoms that we pursue. Your kingdom come is saying, God, order the world in the same way that it is in heaven. But is this the kind of ordering of the universe that you really want? Would you fight for this? Would you vote for this? Would you really entrust setting of the rules to God? And not yourself. Again, it's one thing to say, God, may your kingdom come, when in our heads we have all kinds of things out there. All kinds of rules and laws and the way the world we think ought to operate. Because those people would not be in power who are in power. And these people who are not in power would be in power. And those laws would be changed to these laws and these things would be that instead of this. And so we look out at the world and we say, yes, God's rule and reign, we want it to come because we want these things to change. But again, if we ask ourselves, can I let God make the rules in my life? Can I let God call the moral balls and strikes in my own life? Can I let God say, do not pursue this and pursue that. Don't care about these things, rather care about these things. This is the road that leads to life. This is the road that leads to death. This is who you are. This is how you should live. This is what you should do. Are we willing to relinquish that to God?
You see, before we can pray, God, impose your kingdom on the world, we must first say, God, impose your kingdom in my life. I want to live under the rule and the reign of Jesus. God, get the attention. God, have the power. And then finally, God, take control. If your kingdom come is about setting the rules and the values, then your will be done is about the outcomes. In other words, what's going to happen to me? And if I'm honest, all of these are are hard to pray if I'm truly praying these things. But this is probably the hardest for me because I want to be in control. I want to control the way that you perceive me. I want to, I see my kids and who they're becoming and starting to drive and all these things and I want to be in control. I see where my life is heading in this direction or that direction and I want to be in control. I see my business and my finances and I want to be in control. I want to guide and direct the outcomes because I want to be in control. And then I think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Very early in the morning before he was to be crucified and put to death. And we find him praying to the Father and he says, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but your will. You see, Jesus knew exactly what was before him. It was no mystery. Jesus knew before the foundations of the world exactly what was going to happen and when. And yet he willingly came, knowing full well what was going to happen. You see, it's one thing to pray, oh God, let your will be done in this situation or that situation because we're completely blind and completely powerless of what is going to happen in the future. But what if you knew exactly what and how was going to happen in front of you and you still prayed, God, I don't want that to happen, but I willingly submit to your will, let your will be done. Honestly, I don't know if I could pray that prayer. Jesus knows And yet he asks, Father, can this cup pass from me? Is there any way that what's about to happen does not have to involve my suffering and my death? Is there any other way that this can take place without me having to die? And the Father's answer to the Son is no, there's not. I wonder if I could pray that prayer and get a no and ever pray that prayer again. Or ever pray again. Can I, will I actually relinquish control to God? You see, I think our default is to function in life as if it's either governed by choice or by chance. Either we're in control or nobody's in control. Either we feel secure because we see our outcomes coming, manifesting before us and we have this reassurance of somehow we have some kind of agency in the world or we see that our choices can't really substantially change anything and so we realize our own weakness and we, and it seems as though the entire universe is governed by chance and chaos. And what this prayer is is a declaration that we are not in control but somebody else is. Friedrich Beekner He's an American theologian and a writer. He's written several books. He has a devotional book that's called Listening to Your Life. And he writes this. It's a little long, but track with me. It's really good. He says, in the Episcopal order of worship, 
the priest sometimes introduces the Lord's Prayer with these words. Now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say. The word bold is worth thinking about, he says. We do well not to pray the prayer lightly. It takes guts to pray it at all. You cannot pray it in the unthinking, perfunctory way we usually do, if only, but only if you disregard what it is saying. Thy will be done is what we are saying. It is the climax of the first half of the prayer. We're asking God to be God. We're asking God not to do what we want, but to do what He wants. We're asking God to make manifest a holiness that is now mostly hidden, to set free in all of its terrible splendor the devastating power that is now mostly restraint. Thy kingdom come on earth is what we're saying. And if that were to suddenly happen, what then? What would stand and what would fall? Who would be welcomed in and who would be thrown out? Which of any of the, which of any of our most precious visions of what God is or what human beings are would prove to be more or less on the mark and which would turn out to be as phony as a three dollar bill? Boldness indeed. To speak those words is to invite the tiger out of the cage and to unleash a power that makes an atomic power look like a warm breeze. You need boldness in the, in another way to speak the second half. Give us, forgive us, don't test us, deliver us. It take, if it takes guts to face the omnipotence that is God, it takes perhaps no less to face the impotence of ourselves. We can do nothing without God. We can have nothing without God. Without God we are nothing. It is only the words our Father that makes the prayer bearable. If God is indeed something like a father, then as something like children, maybe we can risk approaching him anyways. You see, Jesus asks us to do three things in this portion of the prayer. To reflect attention, to submit to authority, to release control. That is what we're made for. And if I am to stand up here and ask you to do that in any sincere way, If there's any way that these three requests makes any sense to ask him to hallow his name, to ask for his kingdom to come, to ask for his will to be done, it is only if the four first four verses of the prayer are true. That is the only way it makes sense. It is the only kernel of hope that we have. It's the only thing that tethers our heart and anchors our soul. To be able in any wholehearted way to pray this prayer, the first four words must be true. Our Father in heaven. That's it. Never pray this prayer to anyone or anything else. It is only that that makes this prayer prayable. That we, ref- that we are reflecting, that we are submitting, that we are releasing to our Father in heaven who loves us as a good Father so much so that He sent His Son, Jesus, to die for us in order to make us His own and to bless us with every spiritual blessing in heaven. But if we think about it, it creates a conundrum. Because on the one hand, we respond, wow, what a father. That he loves his children so much that he would send his son to die for them. But on the other hand, we have to say, wait. The father sent his son to die for his children? What might he ask me to do? This father is the kind of father that would send his children to die on the behalf of some greater good. What might he actually ask me to do? 
But you see, part of inviting the tiger out of the cage and unleashing a power that makes an atomic power look like a warm breeze, this whole faith thing is trusting in our Father in heaven is a Father that knows what we do not know. Our Father was willing to ask the Son to come to the cross, to bear the unbearable, to die in the place of sinners because the Father could see the resurrection on the other side. The Father knew what appeared to be the greatest devastation and destruction and loss was actually the greatest victory of all time. So absolutely, our Father in heaven is the kind of Father that might ask you to walk into what appears to be a great loss or a great pain or even a great death. And yet still, our Father is asking, would you trust me? Even if I ask you to walk down a tunnel that looks dark and dangerous, would you trust me anyways? When it makes no sense, will you trust him anyways? When you cannot uh, understand the outcomes and they don't look like what you want them to be, would you trust him anyways? When the rules and the laws and the values make no sense, would you trust him anyways? When you want to self-preserve, would you trust him anyways? Because yes, it is the father who sent his son to die on the cross, but it's the same father who rose him from the grave three days later, who loves his children and loves his son. This is the only way we can pray this prayer. It's the only way that we will pray this prayer. And so when we pray this prayer, when we are reflecting more and more attention towards God, when we are submitting more and more of our life to God, when we are relinquishing more and more control to him, what happens is we begin to flourish as his people because that is what we are made for. You weren't made to have all the attention. It will destroy you. You weren't made to have the power. It will crush you. And you were not made to have the control. It will leave you feeling filled with anxiety and constantly striving for more. But to live life abundantly, to live life the way that God intends for you to live, to live as his people who are flourishing under his rule and reign, is to entrust yourself more and more to God and to increasingly pray this prayer with conviction. Our Father in heaven, let your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we call you our Father because that is who you are. You are intimate. You are close. You are near. You are our Father in heaven and yet you are transcendent and you are different and you are otherworldly. And it is in the tension of these two realities that we place our faith. You love us so much, Father, that there was no sacrifice too great for you. And you were so powerful that the greatest sacrifice of all time was not the end of the story. And it caused or required suffering and death because the greatest life was put to death. And you call us into this greater life with all the little deaths that it might require. So, Father, help us to trust you. As we walk in them, as we draw draw us to yourself, draw us into Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And in this, may we see your faithfulness.
that you sustain us, that you care for us, that in this, that you are changing us and making us more and more into the people that you have recreated us to be. So, Father, I pray as we contemplate the Lord's Prayer, that we think about our Father who is in heaven, what it means for Him, for you to make your name hallowed among us, for your kingdom to to come and for your will to be done. Father, we pray that it will transform our life. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.